History History Podcast. I am Jordan, and I'm going to be alone today. Um, so things have been a little crazy lately, as you have noticed. We haven't posted in a while. I was uh, I was moving, so I bought a house, and then we had to do a bunch to it. So it took a lot longer than it should have, probably. So yeah, I bought it, it was the beginning of April, and we just got done working on it. So I apologize for the big uh, big lapse there in episodes. We don't ever want to have have that happen again. We just it just was too much going on. It I was working full time, and then I get off work, and then work on the house till ten or eleven at night every single day. So there was just a lot going on. So thank you guys for understanding. Um, yeah, but in the moving forward, we should be back to normal. Um, it might be just me for a couple episodes, or it could be me and Allie next week. I'm not really sure. We don't really have a plan yet, but um. We are going to be posting regularly, so be on the lookout for that. So today, I'm going to be talking about the Hillsborough disaster, or the Hillsborough Stadium disaster, as some know it as. So the Hillsborough disaster was a fatal human crush during a football match at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England, on the 15th of April, 1989. It occurred during an FA Cup semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. In the two standing-only central pins in the Leppings Lane stand allocated to Liverpool supporters. Shortly before kickoff, in an attempt to ease overcrowding outside the entrance turnstiles, the police match commander, uh, David Duckenfield, yep, that's a real name, ordered Exegate C be opened, leading to an influx of even more supporters to the pins. This led to, a crowd, to crowding in the pins and the crush. With 96 deaths and 766 injuries, it is the highest death toll in British sporting history. 94 people died that day. Another person died in the hospital a few days later. And the final victim, Tony Bland, who had been put into a persistent vegetative state by the crush and had never regained consciousness, died in 1993. The match was abandoned, but restaged at Old Trafford in Manchester on the 7th of May, 1989 with Liverpool winning and going on to win the FA Cup. In the following days and weeks, police fed the press false stories suggesting that hooliganism and drunkenness by Liverpool supporters had caused the disaster. Blaming of Liverpool fans persisted, even after the Taylor Report of 1990, which found that the main cause of the failure uh, or was the failure of control by South Yorkshire Police. Following the Taylor Report, the Director of Public Prosecutions ruled that there is no evidence to justify prosecution of any individuals or institutions. The disaster also led to a number of safety improvements in the largest English football grounds, notably the elimination of fenced standing terraces in favor of all Cedar stadiums in the top two tiers of English football. It's hard to imagine going to a game and just being like in a pen of people, just as close as you can get. That's, I don't know. The fact that that was ever a thing is pretty crazy you just go it'd be like a like the pit of a concert but you're just standing there for hours watching a football game that sounds awful the first coroner's inquest into the hillsborough disaster completed in 1991 ruled that all deaths were accidental 
Families rejected the findings and fought that the case be reopened. In 1997, Lord Justice Stuart Smith concluded that there was no justification for a new inquiry. Private prosecutions brought by the Hillsborough Families Support Group against Duckenfield and his deputy Bernard Murray failed in 2000. In 2009, a Hillsborough independent panel was formed and reviewed the evidence. Reporting in 2012, it confirmed the Taylor's 1990s critis- or 1990 criticisms and revealed details to- about the extent of police efforts to shift blame onto the fans, the role of the other emergency services, and the error of the first coroner's inquests. The panel report resulted in previous findings of accidental death being, squ- being quashed and the creation of new coroner's inquests. It also produced two criminal investigations led by the police in 2012, Operation Resolve, to look into the causes of the disaster and by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. <laughs> That's a commission, the complaint, just all complaints. <laughs> uh, to examine actions by the police in the aftermath. The second coroner's inquests were held from April 1st, 2014 to April 26th, 2016. They ruled that the supporters were unlawfully killed due to grossly negligent failures by police and ambulance services to fulfill their duty of care. The inquest also found that the design of the stadium contributed to the crush, that the supporters were not to blame for, this dan- for the dangerous conditions. Public anger over the actions of the f- their force during the second inquest led to a suspension of the SYP Chief Constable David Crompton following the verdict. In June 2017, I'm sorry, six people were charged with offenses including manslaughter by gross negligence, misconduct in public office, and perverting the course of justice for their actions during and after the disaster. The Crown Prosecution Service subsequently dropped all the charges against one of the defendants. Man, could you imagine getting in trouble? Well, I mean, they should have, but just all that time passes, then you get sent to jail. That's crazy. So let's talk about the stadium a little bit. Um, Hillsborough Stadium had been constructed in 1899 to house Sheffield Wednesday. It was selected by the Football Association, or FA, as we'll go on to call it, as a neutral venue to host the FA Cup semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest football clubs. The kickoff was scheduled for 3 p.m. on April 15th, and the fans were advised to take positions 15 minutes beforehand. At the time of the disaster, most English football stadiums had high steel fencing between the spectators and the playing field in response to pitch invasions. Hooliganism had affected the sport for some years and was particularly violent in England. From 1974, when these security standards were put in place, crushes occurred in several English stadiums. A report by Eastwood and Partners for a safety certificate for the stadium in 1978 concluded that although it failed to meet the recommendations of the Green Guide, a guide to safely or a guide to safety and sports grounds. That's a weird sentence. The consequences were minor. It emphasized that the general situation at Hillsborough was satisfactory compared to most grounds. Sheffield Wednesday were later criticized for neglig- neglecting safety in the stadium, especially after the incident in the semifinal of the 1981 FA Cup. The Leppings Lane end of the ground did not hold valid, a valid safety certificate at the time of the disaster. It had not been updated for 10 years. Risks associated with confining fans and pins were highlighted by the Committee of Inquiry into Crowd Safety and Sports Grounds, also known as the Pop- Popplewell 
inquiry. That is very British sounding. After the Bradford City Stadium fire in 1985, it made recommendations on safety of crowds pinned within fences, including that all exits should be manned at all times and capable of being opened immediately from inside by anyone in an emergency. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty, uh, pretty good idea. So here are some previous incidents. Hillsborough hosted five FA Cup semifinals in the 1980s. A crush occurred at Leppings Lane, uh, the Leppings Lane end of the stadium, on, in 1981 in a semifinal between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Man, these are some names right here. After hundreds more spectators were permitted to enter the terrace than safely accommodated, resulting in 38 injuries, including broken arms, legs, and ribs. Can you imagine being crushed so hard your ribs are just popping? Ugh. Fuck. Police believed um, there had been a real chance of fatalities had swift action not been taken and recommended that the club reduce its capacity. In a post-match briefing to discuss the incident, Sheffield Wednesday chairman, Bert McGee, <laughs> that sounds like a fake name, <laughs> just call me Bert McGee, remarked, bollocks, no one would have been killed. Well, he's a real understanding guy. Um, the incident, nonetheless, prompted Sheffield Wednesday to alter the layout of Leppings Lane, uh, dividing the terrace into three separate pins to restrict sideways movement. It, this 1981 change and other later changes to the stadium invalidated the stadium's safety certificate. The safety certificate was never renewed, and stated capacity of the stadium was never changed. Um, the terrace was divided into five pins when the club was promoted to the first division in 1984 and a crush barrier near the access tunnel was removed in 1986 to improve the flow of fans entering and exiting the central enclosure. After the crush in 1981, Hillsborough was not chosen to host the FA Cup semifinal for six years until 1987. Serious overcrowding was observed at the 1981 qu quarterfinal between Sheffield Wednesday and Coventry City, and again the semifinal between Coventry City and Leeds United at Hillsborough. Leeds was assigned... Um, leads were assigned Leppings Lane End. A Leeds fan described the disorganization and turnstiles and no steward or police direction inside the stadium, resulting in the crowd in one enclosure becoming so compressed there was at times they were at times unable to raise and clap his hands. Oh my god. Um, other accounts told of fans being have told of fans having to be pulled to safety from above. I cannot, I don't know how people would stand there for that long. I would be so out of there. You just, I just couldn't, ugh. Like, I'm not that claustrophobic, but holy shit. Could you imagine? Liverpool and Nottingham Forest met in the semifinal at Hillsborough in 1988, and fans reported crushing at the Leppings Lane end. Liverpool lodged a complaint before the match in 1989. One supporter wrote to the Football Association and Minister for Sport. The whole area was packed solid to the point where it was impossible to move and where I and others around me felt considerably, considerable concern for our personal safety. Yeah, I would say so. Holy shit. So, the disaster. Um, here's a little bit of the beforehand. As is common in, at domestic matches in England, opposing supporters were segregated. Nottingham Forest supporters were allocated to the South Stands and Spion Cup on the East End with a combined capacity of 29,800 
breached by 60 turnstiles spaced along two sides of the ground. Liverpool's supporters were allocated the north end, north and west ends, um, including Leppings Lane, holding 24,256 fans reached by 23 turnstiles from a narrow concourse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Turnstiles numbered 1 to 10, 10 in all, provided access to 9,700 seats. 10 turnstiles. Holy shit. In the north stand, a further six turnstiles numbered 11 to 16 provided access to 4,456 in the upper tier of the west end. And finally, seven turnstiles lettered A to G provided access to 10,100 standing places in the lower tier of the west stand. Although Liverpool had more supporters, Nottingham Forest was allocated the larger area to avoid the approach routes of rival fans crossing. As a result of the stadium layout and segregation policy, turnstiles that normally would have been used to enter the north stand from the east were off limits, and all Liverpool supporters had to converge on a single entrance at Leppings Lane. On match day, radio and television advised fans without tickets not to attend. Rather than establishing crowd safety as the priority clubs, local authorities, and the police view their roles and responsibilities through the lens of hooliganism. Again, just blaming the victims. Pretty, uh, pretty shitty. So here is a bit of a timeline. Hang on, I need a drink of coffee before we get into all this madness. Okay. So, three chartered trains transported Liverpool supporters to Sheffield for a match fixture in 1988, but only one such train ran in 1989. The 350 passengers arrived at the ground around 2.20 p.m. Many supporters wished to enjoy the day and were in no hurry to enter the stadium too early. Some supporters were delayed by roadworks while crossing the pennies on the M62 motorway, which resulted in minor traffic congestion. Between 2.30 and 2.40, there was a buildup of supporters outside the turnstiles facing Leppings Lane, eager to the end... <laughs> Sound like rewinding a VCR. Okay, sorry about that. Eager to enter, man, hard, hard uh, phrase. Eager to enter the stadium before the game. At 2:46 p.m., the BBC's football commentator John Motson had already noticed the Im- imbalance of distribution of people in the Leppings Lanes pens. While rehearsing for the match off-air, he suggested a nearby cameraman look as well. There's gaps, you know, in parts of the ground. Well, if you look at the Liverpool end, they're right to the right of the goal. There's hardly anybody on those steps. That's it. Look down there, he said. Outside the stadium, a bottleneck developed with more fans arriving than could have safely been filtered through the turnstiles before 3 p.m. People presenting tickets at wrong turnstiles and those had been refused entry could not leave because of the crowd behind them, but remained as an obstruction. Holy shit, there's so many people you can't even turn around and walk out. Excuse me. Fans outside could hear cheering as the teams came on the pitch with 10 minutes before the match started, and as the match kicked off but could not gain entrance. A police constable radioed control requesting that the game be delayed as it took two years, or as it had been two years before, to ensure the safe passage of supporters into the ground. The requested delay of the match by 20 minutes was declined. With an estimated 5,000 fans trying to enter through the turnstiles and increasing safety concerns, the police 
to avoid fatalities outside the grounds, opened a large exit gate, Gate C, that ordinarily permitted the free flow of supporters departing the stadium. Two further gates, A and B, were subsequently um, opened to relieve pressure. After an initial rush, thousands of supporters entered the stadium steadily at a fast walk, they said. So now let's get into the crush. When the gates were opened, thousands of fans entered a narrow tunnel, leading them to the rear, um, from the rear of the terrace into two overcrowded central pens, pens three and four, creating pressure at the front. Hundreds of people were pressed against one another and the fencing by the weight of the crowd behind them. People um, entering were unaware of the problems at the fence. Police or stewards usually stood at the entrance of the tunnel, and when the central pens reached capacity, directed fans to the side pens, but on this occasion, for reasons not fully explained, they did not. The match between Liverpool and Nottingham Force began as scheduled at 3 p.m., and fans were still streaming into pens 3 and 4 from the rear entrance as the match began. For some time, problems at the front of the Liverpool central goal pens were, went largely unnoticed, except by those inside them and a few police at the end of the pitch. Liverpool's goalkeeper, Bruce Grobbelar, I think is how it's pronounced, reported fans from behind him pleading for him to help as the situation worsened. Holy shit. The police first attempted to stop fans from spilling out of the pens. Some believe believing this to be a pitch invasion. At approximately 3.04, a shot from Liverpool's Peter Beardsley hit the bar, possibly connected to the excitement. A, large, a surge in pen three caused one of the metal crush barriers to give way. South Yorkshire Police Superintendent Greenwood released this, uh, realized the situation and ran onto the field to gain referee Ray Lewis's attention. Lewis stopped the match at 3.05, so only five minutes into it. Wow. As fans climbed the fence in an effort to escape the crush and went on to, onto the track, by this time a small gate uh, in the fence had been forced to open and some fans were escaping via this route as others continued to climb over the fencing. Other fans were pulled to safety by fans in the west stand above the Leppings Lane Terrace. The intensity of the crush broke, uh, broke more crush barriers on the terraces Holes in the perimeter fencing were made by fans desperately attempting to rescue others. The crowd in Leppings Lane stand overspilled onto the pitch where the many injured and traumatized fans had climbed to safety congregated. Football players from both teams were unsheared to their respective dressing rooms. Unsheared. Never heard a phrase like that. And told that there would be a 30-minute postponement. Those still trapped in the pens were packed so tightly that... Many victims died of compressive asphyxia while standing. Oh my, that's awful. I couldn't even imagine. That would be... Mm. Oof, man. Meanwhile, on the pitch, police stewards and members of the St. John Ambulance Service were overwhelmed. Many uninjured fans assist the injured. Several attempted CPR and others tore down advertising hoardings to use as stretchers. Chief Superintendent John Nisbet of South Yorkshire Police later briefed Michael Shearsby um, that leaving the rescue to fans was a deliberate strategy and was quoted as saying, we let the fans help so that they would not take their frustration out on the police. What the fuck? You didn't, people were just being good people and you're saying you let them do that? That's ridiculous. The, uh, 
This is the second time the Yorkshire police haven't looked so good. I, uh, sorry if you're from there, but that's kind of an asshole thing to say. Maybe it's just the people in charge, because, man, what a dick. I let those people save those other people. Okay. Good for you, bud. So, the agreed-upon protocol for the Shorth... Shorth, that's not a word for sure. All right, try again. South Yorkshire Metropolitan Ambulance Service, or SYMAS, which doesn't really roll off the tongue, were, were the ambulances that were to queue uh, at the entrance of the gymnasium, termed the Casualty Reception Point, or CRP. Any individuals within the stadium in need of medical attention were to be delivered by police, paramedics, or civilians to the CRP. The system of faring injured from any location within the stadium to the SR, or CRP, I don't know why I keep saying S, CRP, required a formal declaration to be made by those in charge for it to take effect. As, it, as this declaration was not immediately performed, confusion reigned over those attempting to administer aid on the pitch. The, this confusion migrated to the first responders waiting in the ambulances at the CRP. A location quickly deteriorated into an ambulance parking lot. Some crews were hesitant to leave their vehicles, unsure of whether patients were coming to them or vice versa. Others who did leave their vehicles were then faced with obstacles inherent in placing distance between themselves and their equipment, as a panel uh, explained in their report. Uh, in quotes, the equipment was of no use in the ambulance, um, on the ambulance vehicle, when critical early resuscitation was taking place some distance away from the pitch, behind the Leppings Lane and the, in the gymnasium. Some ambulance crews did not take equipment when they left their vehicle, but there was no syst systematic direction to do so, so not all did. And none initially had been given any information about the situation inside the stadium. How is there no, like, jeez. I mean, communication was harder back then with, like, there's no cell phones and stuff. There's still radios. Just be like, hey, bring your shit. I feel like if they called an ambulance, they're going to need the things that come inside an ambulance, you know? Hmm. A total of 42 ambulances arrived at the stadium. Out of this number, two managed to, of their own accord, make their way onto the pitch. Wow. While a third ambulance made its way onto the pinch, pinch, that's not it, pitch, at the direction of DCAO Hopkins who felt its visibility might allay crowd concerns. While the remaining 39 ambulances were collectively able to transport approximately 149 people to either Northern General Hospital, Royal Hallamshire Hospital, or Barnsley Hospital for treatment. The adverse comments of two doctors regarding the emergency uh, response appeared in the media. Their views were not, in quotes, the maverick view from a disaffected minority, but the considered opinion uh, of the majority of professionals present from the outset. Whoa. That is some doctor way to say shit. I'll say that. That was way harder than it should have been. Man. All right. So here are some reactions from around the world about this disaster. So condolences flooded in from across the world led by the Queen. Other messages came from Pope John Paul II, U.S. President George H.W. Bush, and Chief Executive of Juventus. Fans of Liverpool and Juventus had been involved in the Hayseal Stadium disaster, amongst many others. 
Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Home Secretary Douglas Hurd visited Hillsborough the day after the accident and met survivors. Anfield Stadium was opened on Sunday to allow fans to pay tribute to the dead. Thousands of fans visited, and the stadium filled with flowers, scarves, and other tributes. In the following days, more than 200,000 people visited the shrine inside the stadium. The following Sunday, Alenco football scarves spanning one mile um, went from Stanley Park from Godson Park to Anfield uh, was created with the final scarf in position at 3.06 p.m. Elsewhere on the same day, a silence opened with an air raid siren at 3 o'clock was held in, the central, in central Nottingham with colors of Forest, Liverpool, and Wednesday adorning the Nottingham Council House. At Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral, a requiem mass attended by 3,000 people was held by the Catholic Archbishop of Liverpool, Derek Warlock. The reading, the first reading was read by Liverpool goalkeeper Bruce Grobelar, Liverpool players Ronnie Whelan, Steve Nichol, and former manager Joe Fagan carried the communion bread and wine. The FA chief executive Graham Kelly, who had attended the match, said the FA would conduct an inquiry into what happened. Speaking after the disaster, Kelly backed all Cedar Stadiums, saying we must move fans away from the ritual of, being, of standing on terraces. Um, standing on terraces and the use of perimeter fencing around the pitch, the use of CCTV, the timing of football matches, and the policing of sporting events were factors for a subsequent inquiry to consider. UEFA President <clears throat> excuse me, Jock George, man, what a name, caused controversy by describing the Liverpool supporters as beasts. All right, fuck this guy. Wrongly suggesting that hooliganism was the cause of the disaster, which had occurred less than four years after the Hazel Stadium disaster. His res- remarks led to Liverpool FC calling for his re- resignation, but he apologized on discovering that hooligan- hooliganism was not the cause. Even if it was, like, he's, he's still unsafe for people to be in there. People get rowdy at sporting events. That's just how it is. You can't just have people in places where they can hurt themselves. You know people are going to get... They like their their diehard fans. You can't just place them in places that are unsafe. That still doesn't make it okay, even if it was the people. But it wasn't. I mean, it's just... These people just are looking for an out, and they just don't want to say that it's not safe. I don't... That's weird. So at the 1989 FA Cup between Liverpool and local rivals Everton, held just five weeks after the Hillsborough disaster, the players from both participating teams wore black armbands as a gesture of respect to the victims. During the final match of the 1988-89 English football season, contested on May 26, 1989, between Liverpool and second-place Arsenal, the Arsenal players presented flowers to the fans in different parts of Anfield and memory to those who had died in the Hillsborough disaster. Wow, that's really awesome. All right. So they, a disaster appeal fund was set up with donations of 500,000 pounds from the government, 100,000 pounds from Liverpool, and 25,000 pounds each from the cities of Liverpool, Sheffield, and Nottingham. Liverpool donated the share of the money that they would have, would have received for the game. Within days, the donations passed one million pounds. 
swelled by donations from individuals, schools, and businesses. Other fundraising activities included factory records, a factory records benefit concert and several fundraising football matches. Bradford City and Lincoln City, the teams involved in the Bradford Stadium fire, first are met for the first time since the 1985 disaster in a game which raised $25,000, or pounds, I'm sorry. Um, when the appeal closed the following year, it had raised over 12 million pounds. Wow. Much of the money went to the victims and relatives of those involved in the disaster and provided funds for college courses to improve the, the hospital phase of emergency care. In May of 1989, a charity version of the Jerry and Pacemaker song, Ferry Cross the Mercy, was released in aid uh, to those affected. The song featured Liverpool musicians Paul McCartney, Gary Marsden, Holly Johnson, and the Christians, and was produced by Stock Atkin Waterman. It entered the UK singles chart at number one on the 20th of May, remaining there for a total of three weeks. Although Jerry and the Pacemakers' earlier hit, You'll Never Walk Alone, had stronger ties to Liverpool FC, it was not used because it had been recently been recorded for the Bradford City Stadium Fire Appeal. By the disaster's 10th anniversary in 1999, at least three people who had survived were known to have committed suicide. Another survivor had spent eight years in a psychiatric care facility. There were cases of alcoholism, drug abuse, and collapsed marriages involving people who had witnessed the events. The lingering effects of the disaster were seen as a cause or contributory factor in all of these. A total of 96 people died as a result of their injuries uh, incurred during the disaster. 94 people aged from 10 to 67 years old died on the day, either at the stadium, in the ambulances, or shortly thereafter at the hospital. A total of 766 people were reported to have suffered injuries, among whom 300 were hospitalized. The less seriously injured survivors who did not live in Sheffield area were advised to seek treatment for their injuries at hospitals near to their homes. On April 19th, the death toll reached 95 when 14-year-old Lee Nickel died in a hospital um, after his life support machine was switched off. The death toll reached 96 in March of 1993 when artificial feeding and hydration were withdrawn from 22-year-old Tony Bland after nearly four years, during which time he had remained a persistent, in a persistent vegetative state, showing no sign of improvement. Following a legal challenge in the high court by his family to have his treatment withdrawn, a landmark challenge was succeeded in November of 1992. Andrew Devine, aged 22 at the time of the disaster, suffered similar injuries to Tony Bland and was diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state. In March 1997, just before the 8th anniversary of the disaster, it was reported that he had emerged from his condition, or from the condition and was able to communicate with the touch with a touch sensitive pad and had been showing signs of awareness of his surroundings for up to 3 years before as of 2019 he was still alive but was confined to a wheelchair as a result of his injuries two sisters three pairs of brothers and a father and son were among those who died as were two men who were about to come become fathers for the first time 25 year old Stephen Brown of Rexham and 30-year-old Peter Thompson of Widness. I think is how that's pronounced. John Paul Gealy, age 10, 
was the youngest person to die. His co- cousin, Stephen Gerard, then aged eight, went on to become Liverpool FC's captain. Gerard has said the disaster inspired him to lead the team, and he supported, uh, he supported as a boy and become a top professional football player. That's pretty incredible. I mean, it can't be easy to become a professional football player. Like, that's what are the odds of that happening? It must have just fueled him so much that it made him one of the best to do it. That's, wow, pretty amazing. So the majority of the victims that lost their lives were from Liverpool. Um, there are 37 of them. In Greater Merseyside, there are 20 of them. A further 20 were from counties adjacent to Merseyside. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing these wrong. Merseyside, I think is how it's said. An additional three victims came from Sheffield, with two more living in counties adjacent to South Yorkshire. The remaining 14 victims lived in other parts of... So after this, I have a lot of my notes about... They opened an investigation, which they called the Taylor Report. Uh, but it basically just goes over all the events, the police, what the police did, how everything we've talked about, how the ambulances reacted, how the police reacted. So the Taylor Report had a deep impact on the safety standards for stadiums in the UK. Perimeter and lateral fencing were removed among many of the top stadiums, and many were converted to all seating. Purpose-built stadiums for Premier League and most football league teams since the report are all-seater. Chester City's F or Chester City FC's Deva Stadium was the first English football stadium to fulfill the safety recommendations of the Taylor Report, and Millwall FC's The Den was the first new stadium to be built that fulfilled all the recommendations. In July of 1992, the government announced a relaxation of the regulation for the lower two English leagues, known as League One and League Two. The Football Spectators Act does not cover Scotland but the Scottish Premier League chose to make all-seater stadiums a requirement of league membership. In England and Wales, all-seating is a requirement of the Premier League and of the football leagues for clubs who have been present in the championship for more than three seasons. Several campaigns have attempted to get the government to relax the regulation and allow standing areas to return to premiership and championship grounds. I don't think that shit is necessary. I mean... That's if you're just asking for the history to repeat itself. I mean, there's no cages still, but I mean, if you're having people standing, I don't know. It's just everybody should have a seat. That's the point of capacity. Several memorials have been erected in memory of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster. Flames were added to either side of the Liverpool FC crest in memory of the 96 fans who lost their lives at the Hillsborough disaster. The Hillsborough Memorial at Enfield featuring the names of the 96 who lost their lives in an eternal flame, was located next to the Shankly Gates before it was moved uh, to the front, um, in front of the redeveloped main stand in 2016. A memorial at Hillsborough Stadium unveiled on the 10th anniversary of the disaster of April 15, 1999, reads, In memory of the 96 men, women, and children who tragically died and the countless people whose lives were changed forever. FA Cup semifinal, Liverpool versus Nottingham Forest, 15th of April, 1989. You'll never walk alone. A memorial stone in the pavement on the ground on the south side of Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral 
a memorial garden in Hillsborough Park with a You'll Never Walk Alone gateway. A headstone at the junction of Middlewood Road, Leppings Lane, and Wadsley Lane near the ground um, by the Sheffield Supertram route. A Hillsborough Memorial Rose Garden in Port Sunlight, Whirl. A Memorial Rose Garden on Sudley Estate in South Liverpool. A seven-foot-high circular bronze memorial was unveiled in the Old Haymarket District of Liverpool in April of 2013. This memorial... That's not a word. This memorial is inscribed with the words, Hillsborough Disaster, We Will Remember Them, and displays the names of 96 victims who died. An eight-foot-high clock dating from the 1780s was installed at Liverpool Town Hall in April of 2013, with hands indicating 3.06, the time at which the match was abandoned. A memorial plaque dedicated to the 96 at Godson, or Godison Park in Liverpool, home of the rivals, Everton FC. The disaster has been acknowledged on the 15th of April every year by the community in Liverpool and, a football, and football in general. An annual memorial ceremony is held at Anfield and at a church in Liverpool. The 10th and 20th anniversaries were marked by special services to remember the victims. In 2014, the FA decided all FA Cup, Premier League, Football League, and Football Conference matches played between the 11th and 14th of April would kick off seven minutes later than originally scheduled with a six-minute delay and a one-minute silence of tribute. The 10th anniversary, in 1999, Anfield was packed with a crowd of around 10,000 people 10 years after the disaster. A candle was lit for each of the 96 victims. The clock at the cop end stood still at 3.06 p.m., the time the referee had blown his whistle in 1989, and a minute silence was held. After the start signaled by a match referee that day, Ray Lewis, a service led... Uh, by Right Reverend James Jones, the Bishop of Liverpool, was attended by past, present, or past and present Liverpool players, including Robbie Fowler, Steve uh, McNamara, and Alan Hansen. According to the BBC report, the names of the victims were read from the memorial book and floral tributes were laid at a plaque bearing their names. A gospel choir performed, and the ceremony ended with a rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. In 2009, on the 20th anniversary of the disaster, Liverpool's request that their Champions League quarterfinals return leg, scheduled for 15th of April, be played the day before was granted. The event was remembered with a ceremony at Anfield attended by over 28,000 people. The cop, centenary, and main stands were open to the public before part of the Anfield Road was open to supporters. The memorial service, led by the Bishop of Liverpool, began at 245 in a two-minute silence of derb across Liverpool, Sheffield, and Nottingham, including public transport coming to a standstill, was held at the time of the disaster 20 years earlier, 3.06. By then, the sports minister addressed the crowd, but was heckled by supporters chanting justice for the 96. The ceremony was attended by survivors of the disaster, families of the victims, and the Liverpool team with the goalkeeper, goalkeeper Pepe Rina leading the team and management staff onto the pitch. Team captain Stephen Gerrard and vice captain Jamie Carragher handed the freedom of the city um, to the families of all the victims. Candles were lit for each of the 96. Kenny Dalgish, 
Liverpool's manager at the time of the disaster read a passage from the Bible, Lamentations of Jeremiah. The Liverpool uh, manager, Rafael Benitez, set 96 balloons free. The ceremony ended with 96 rings of church bells across the city and a rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. So that pretty much marks the end or the conclusion of the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. This is obviously a, a terrible event. Um, I couldn't imagine what it must have been like to be there or just to be a bystander. And I hope all of the people who were there that were suffering have found peace or, or are on the way to finding peace. Um, I could only imagine how that would change your life and how it would, yeah, just affect everyday things that you wouldn't think it would. But I hope all of you are doing well and have found peace. And that is it for this week's episode. Um, thank you for listening. I'm sorry, it's just me. I know I can be kind of monotone and boring to listen to. So thanks for sticking along if you're still here. There's probably like four of you, but all four of you are awesome. Um, yeah. And thank you for sticking with us through this long uh, drought we've had. But we're back, and we're going to stay back. So uh, we will see you next week. Bye.